Today we're starting a brand new series. Today we're starting a new series. We are out of the book of Ephesians. We are moving on and we're going to go back from the New Testament and today we're going to go back to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament has so much to show us that was revealed in the New Testament. But what's really neat is we get the benefit of both. We can see what was concealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament. And we can look at both and understand even deeper these beautiful truths that God has for us. So today, Champions of Prayer. We're going to start with a beautiful story from the Old Testament. I don't know whether anyone else heard that this week were the Women of Influence Awards. Did anyone hear about that this week? You did? Okay, one person. Okay, it happened on Thursday. Women of Influence. And you know, Women of Influence Awards are given to women who make um, an impact, a practical and real impact on other people's lives. There's a very, very special woman in the Old Testament who I would nominate and I would think would be exceptionally the one exceptionally able to justify being given a Women of Influence Award. And her name is Hannah. And Hannah is going to be our champion of prayer today. And you know, Hannah is an amazing woman. But she's not amazing because she's any different to any of us. Because you see, the Old Testament gives us these stories, these case studies, these real accounts of real people And some of them are very normal, everyday people with everyday lives. And some have very abnormal, different kind of lives. But today we're looking at a lady who has problems that are similar to ours, issues that are similar to ours, and the very same God that empowered Hannah to be a champion of of prayer is right here today. And you know, that beautiful God that inspired Hannah and empowered Hannah to pray some amazing prayers... He wants to meet with you today. You know, we aren't here playing church today. I loved what Jade said. We are not here to play church. We're not here to sit and go through a routine and then we sing and then we sit and then we do prayer and then we do the kids thing and we think, aren't they cute? Then the kids go, then we sit down and someone blurbles on for a while and then we move on, we have something to eat and we go. That is not what this is about. What we're coming here for is to meet with Jesus. And Jesus wants to meet with you today. He wants to meet with you through his word, his written word. And he wants to meet with you today through his spoken word. He wants to meet with you. He is so, so desirous to meet with you today. You have an amazing opportunity to meet with him today. If your heart is open to meet with him. So through the story of Hannah, we are going to meet a wonderful God today. We're going to learn that through her circumstances, God was able to mould and change her heart to be identical to, to God's desires and God's will. Who wants that? Who wants to have God's will in their life? Who wants to have a heart like God? Yeah, bring it on. And do you know what? Those same circumstances and difficulties that Hannah, faces, Hannah faced, that we face today, God used them to mould and change her heart and desires to be the same as his. And do you know, he can do exactly the same thing with us. 
The circumstances of your life, the problems that you face in your life are not there by coincidence. It's not like God doesn't notice. It's not like God doesn't know exactly what's going on in each person's life in this room. He wants to use those circumstances to mold and shift and make your will the same as his. And you know when your will and his will line up, watch out. Because we have plenty of champions of prayer in this very room if only our hearts would line up with his. It's going to happen. Watch out. Okay, let's see if I can work this thing. All right, so the emphasis, the main point of Hannah's story is that she had a heart for God. You see, Paul tells us in Galatians, he says in Galatians 5, that the flesh desires things that are in opposition with what the spirit desires. In Chronicles, in Second Chronicles, God says, I am looking, my eyes are searching and looking for people whose hearts are committed to me because I want to strengthen them and I want to bless them. He is looking today. He is here to meet with you today. He wants your heart to be so totally enmeshed with his so that his desires and your desires are identical. The desires of the flesh are in opposition, though, to the desires of his spirit. We've got to get rid of one and build up the other. And that's what you'll see in Hannah's life today. And God will do that with you. He extends his arm to you and says, let me mold you. Come with me. I've got something so exciting to do with you. So let's meet Hannah and her family. So this is Hannah. So Hannah's on the right. She's got the tears and she has the love hearts. The love hearts is the love being expressed by her husband. Her husband is standing there in the middle. His name is Alkanah. And Alkanah has two wives. He has Hannah on the right, who's crying and is not happy. And he has Penina on the other side, on the left. Now you'll notice that Penina has children and Hannah... Nope. No children. This is the first problem that Hannah faces. She is barren. She is empty. And you know, we can be barren and we can be empty in our lives too. It may not be for children. It may be for something else. But there's often a barrenness that God starts with in our lives. I mean, the the Bible says that God closed Hannah's womb. So it's not like her circumstances just happened. God's in control of her circumstances, just like he's in control of your circumstances. So stop for a minute. Think about your own life. Think about this week. What is barren in your life? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? What are you praying for? What are you wanting in your life that you don't have right now? Stop and just think about that. Is it a child? Is it a job? Is it a house? I think of those poor people in New South Wales that have all lost their homes. They're barren, aren't they? Really barren. What else is barren in your life, though? Meet with God today. Stop and ask yourself. Say, God, what's barren in my life today? Is it money? 
Are you empty for purpose of life or even meaning? But there's a barrenness in all our lives that God wants to actually change. He doesn't want us to be barren forever. He has a beautiful, amazing plan for each champion of prayer sitting in this room. And it's interesting that if you think about Hannah's name, it means grace. So she starts being barren, just like you and I. We all have barren problems, just like Hannah had a barren problem. But her name means grace. So it means her life is to actually exalt getting something that she didn't deserve. She got something because of God. Wow, I'd love to be called Hannah. Wouldn't that be great? My life would then just be grace. Doesn't matter what I got or what I do, it's all because of him and I don't deserve a thing of it. That's what, great, that's what her name means, Grace. Now, Penina, she's got all the kids in tow. You know what her name means? Jewel or Pearl. And when I think of Jewel or Pearl, I think, of, look at me, I'm shining. Look at me. Look what I got. I got kids. You got none. And we'll see that she lives up to that name. So you can see two very different approaches to life, two very different hearts, two very different situations. But think about what's barren in your life and see how God changed things in Hannah's life through her barrenness. That's the first step. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is something missing. And he used her circumstances to mold her so that she could come smack bang into the middle of his purposes Man, did her life make a difference to the kingdom of God. Amazing. And it all started with barrenness. These guys just lived in the mountains, just an ordinary family, mountain dwellers, pretty quiet life, you know, get up in the morning, have breakfast, wash up, have lunch, wash up, have dinner, wash up, go to bed, get up. It's no different. It's the same. You and I have the same life as Hannah and her family. If God can do this to Hannah, God can do this in your life and my life. She's not super special. It's not like, oh, yeah, that's all right for Hannah. No, 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 no. It's God in Hannah that makes her so special. This is a great story. God wants to meet you in this story. Come and meet him. So Elkanah, bless his socks, knew about Hannah's problem, not having children. It was a little bit obvious. He couldn't miss this problem. So he really tried hard to solve this problem. So he used to pour out his affection on Hannah because he kind of favoured Hannah over Penina. So he gave her oodles and oodles of affection. That's what all the love hearts are. Oh, gives her so much affection. But that actually didn't work. And then you can see he's giving this little gift here. And what the Bible says is it says that every year they used to go to Shiloh. It was a little town not too far away where there was a temple and they used to sacrifice every year at a festival and go and pray and speak to God in the temple. And what he used to do is every year he used to give meat to everyone in the family. So he'd give some to Penina and some to her children. But when it came to Hannah, he gave her a double portion. He thought, I'll give you even more meat to sacrifice. Surely that'll do it. That'll solve the problem. Here, more steak on your plate. But you know what? 
Year after year they went up to the temple. Year after year they sacrificed to the Lord. And year after year Hannah came back barren. He was perplexed, Elkanah. He would say to Hannah, why are you so downcast? Because she was crying all the time. She was sad all the time. She wouldn't eat. Why aren't you eating? Why, why, why? There's three why questions in a row. Go and have a look in 1 Samuel. I don't know about you, but when I'm crying and when I'm upset and when I'm pinged off, if someone comes and asks me a why question, it ain't helping. But she didn't get one why question. She got three why questions in a row. So just feel like Hannah now, okay? So you're crying, you're down. Your spouse is saying, why? Why are you upset? Why are you downcast? Why aren't you eating? And then to top it off, poor old Elkanah, seriously, this is what he says after the three barrage of why questions. Aren't I worth more than ten sons? Look at me. You got me. That didn't work either. Funny that. I mean, seriously. He tries giving her extra attention. He tries giving more steak on the plate. And now he's trying to say, hey, you got me. Look at me. You know, he reminds me of a certain rooster. Do you know there's a certain rooster who seriously thinks, seriously thinks, The reason the sun rises is because it's rising to meet him so he can crow. Am I being a bit harsh? Probably. Seriously, where did Elkanah look to solving the problem? It was him. Now, go back to that thing that's empty in your life, that's barren in your life, that God stirred up just five minutes ago. Remember? Was it a house? Was it life purpose? Was it money? Was it a husband? Was it a wife? Whatever it is that's empty in your life. How have you been trying to solve that problem? Is it possible you've been trying to do it in your own strength? Is it possible that you've been trying to solve all those problems by going to another human being? Is it possible? You know, Elkanah shows us it's it's not going to make a lot of difference if God has decided that he has a purpose for your life and he's closed your womb. If he's actually said, you're barren in this area for a specific reason because I want to mould you so your desires are like mine, all the material stuff in the world is not going to make any difference at all. You can keep putting that steak on the plate and sacrificing as much meat as you want to, saying, hey, God, let me see if I can twist your arm. What about this? What about that? All these good works. It's not going to make any difference. You see, God's desire is quite different. In Hosea 6, 6, we read, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What does he desire? He desires mercy. What's mercy? Do you know, for such a long time, every time I've read mercy, I've gone mercy. I don't use mercy in my everyday language. Do you use mercy in your everyday language? I don't use mercy in my everyday language. But you know what I do use? I use the words kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So if we look at this word in a Bible dictionary, it will say it's kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Now that means something to me. It happens to be fruit of the Spirit too. But it's kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. So every time you see mercy, you're going to think kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. That's what it is. And he says here, I desire mercy. This is more important 
than sacrifice, more steak on the plate, more meat, more sacrifice. And you know, this is in Hosea, which is in the Old Testament, but we're going to see this repeated twice more in the New Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, because we know with the benefit of being after the New Testament, Jesus was the sacrifice for us. We don't have to keep going back. So he says mercy is incredibly important. His mercy is the most important thing in our life. Without it, we'd be going in a terrible direction. He says an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. More meat is not going to work, Elkanah. Acknowledgement of me. I'm your provision. Come to me. I will give you mercy. Come to me. Acknowledge me as your provider. Part of the definition of mercy is God's providence. He will provide. He is a merciful God. He's waiting for you to ask. He's waiting to meet with you. He has an appointment with you today. We are not leaving church today saying, oh, man, we played church. Good. Oh, now what's next? Stop. Recognize God wants to meet with you today. If you don't meet with him today, you're going to miss out on something really special. He's hot for you today. You can bypass him. You can ignore him. You can think about all the other stuff in life, but you're going to miss something today if you don't meet with Jesus today. He is full of mercy. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. This is his heart He extends mercy. He wants us to extend mercy. But, you know, before we can extend mercy, we've got to understand how much mercy we got from him. But you're not going to get it if you don't go to him. So, first problem that Hannah had is she was barren, no children. But it gets worse. And isn't this like our lives too? You kind of feel like, oh, no, not more problems. God, I don't know if I can actually put up with more. I'm already putting up with quite a bit at the moment. Now, you see, this is poor old Hannah there with the nope. And over here on the left, that's Penina. Now, Penina decided that every year when they went up to sacrifice, she thought she might, the Bible says, irritate her rival and tease her and make fun of her and point her finger at her and laugh at her. You know... Penina really doesn't understand that God desires mercy so much more than fronting up every year and putting the meat on the altar. She's look, he's looking for mercy in her everyday life. That's what he's looking for. That's his desire. Penina misses that here. So keep in mind Hannah's got two problems. Not one problem, but two. But look at her. She's crying. She's downcast. It's like, this is so heavy for me. So notice what she's doing with her problems. She's saying, I'm barren. I haven't got any children. And now I have to put up with her ridiculing me, prodding me, irritating me, making fun of me. This is my life. Oh, and God, he's the guy I go and see every year and I put that meat thing and the sacrifice thing. Oh, he's over here somewhere. So on her scales, big problems. See the problems I've got? Let me tell you about the problems I've got. Do you know people who are constantly telling you about their problems? That's what it's like on their scales. This is my life. This is what I have, problems. 
And God, oh, he's just the guy I come and talk to and play church with on Sunday. He's down here somewhere. I just sacrifice to him every so often just to keep him happy and hopefully he'll let me into heaven at the end. You know, somehow we can feel like this if we do that with the scales. Jesus said in Matthew 9.13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call, the not the righteous, I've come to call sinners. There is not one righteous, not one, the Bible says. So you know who the sinners are? It's all of us. Not one is righteous. So all of us need his mercy, every single one of us. Hannah needs his mercy. She's focusing on the problem. She's not seeing the solution is here within her grasp. Penina is a sinner because she's decided she's not actually showing mercy to Hannah. And Elkanah, well, poor old Elkanah, he doesn't go anywhere near God to solve his problem. I mean, it's interesting that at that point in time, they actually had a model to follow, didn't he? He had a model to follow. Remember Isaac and Rebecca? What happened? What did Isaac do? What did the husband do when Rebecca was barren? He went and prayed. He went straight to God and said, Lord Jesus. He probably would have said God in the Old Testament. God help me. Help my wife. Let her have a child. And Rebecca had a child. That was his solution to the problem. See, we can slip into Elkanah mode real quick. Real quick. We've got to understand... God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He wants us to desire mercy more than sacrifice. More than what's right or wrong is mercy. We need mercy. We need to desire mercy for ourselves. And we need to give others mercy rather than thinking what they're doing right and wrong. So, back to Hannah. This happened year after year after year. And, you know, the Bible is, is actually quiet on um, what Hannah prayed during those years. On and on it went. He just said year after year they went back to Shiloh and made the sacrifice, year after year. But, you know, I think she was praying. And I, I wonder what she prays. You know, Paul says to us in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 26, he says, do you know, we sometimes pray what we ought not to pray. When we get into sticky situations and we think, let's go to God, he says, you know, sometimes we pray what we ought not to pray. And I wonder maybe whether Hannah would have said, please, please give me a son. I can't stand being the only woman that doesn't have a son in this town. Please, I want to be a mother. Please, God, that's all I want. Or I wonder if she might have said, I've got to get Penina off my back. Can you get her off my back? Can you stop her? She's so nasty to me. Can you stop her? I don't like it. Give me a son just so I can get back to her. I wonder if that's how she prayed. I wonder, year after year. But you know, Paul also says in Romans eight twenty six and 27, he says, yes, sometimes we pray and we pray the way we probably shouldn't pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings and the spirit will pray for God's people in accordance with God's will 
So, you know, even if we come to God and even if sometimes our prayers are selfish and sometimes our prayers are our desires, not his desires, you know what's amazing about God, how merciful our God is? He said, the spirit will intercede for you and pray in accordance with my will and my desire. So he does something amazing for us when we come to him and we pray maybe the way we ought not to pray. We've got an amazing God who will even go to that extent to help us out, to mould us, to change things so that our heart is totally in alignment with his heart. Amazing God. So one year, something changed for Hannah. She decided, we come here, we do the sacrifice, we party, we feast. This time, I'm going into the temple. I've had enough. I am at the point of desperation. So Hannah enters the temple. Now, this picture shows the choices that she can make when she prays. Because we know that the mind set on the flesh leads to death. But the mind set on the spirit leads to life. So let's look at these options. Let's look at what's in Hannah's mind when she comes to pray to God with her problems. Because we know that the mind that's actually focused and set upon the spirit is actually going to lead to life. But the mind that is actually set upon the flesh will lead to death. So where her mind is, is really important when she comes to pray to God. So our mind is very important when we come to pray to God. So let's look at a couple of options. Let's look at the first one on the left. We have Hannah here praying and crying. She's distraught. And on the left, we can see in her mind thinking, well, my flesh really wants to deal with the circumstances, the problems here. My flesh wants to change the circumstances of my life and the problems in my life. So maybe I could pray and ask God to give me a child because that would please me. And I like this bit. That would make me look strong. I would look good. Glorify me, God. I want to look like I'm a mom and look at me, I'm a mom. So that would be if her mind was on the flesh because the flesh is trying to please self. So that's one option. Then on the right-hand side, we have Hannah thinking about, well, the other problem I have in my life is Penina. She's a pain. I'm sick of her laughing at me. I'm sick of her teasing me. I'm sick of her giving me a hard time. So maybe I could pray that God would just close the mouth of Penina and, I don't know, somehow stop her being so nasty to me. That would please me and I would feel so much better and then everyone would think, look... When she prays, she gets um, Penina to be quiet and that would please myself as well. That would glorify my name. That would be the mind on the flesh. But there's a third option. There's a third option where our mind is actually set on the spirit. And when the mind is set on the spirit, that's when our will and God's will can be one. And that's when something very, very special happens. He promises. He says you can have confidence in First John. He says you can have confidence if you come to me and if you ask me and if you ask according to my will, 
I will hear you. And he goes on, if I hear you, then it will be done. So the key, the key to him answering our prayers is in accordance with his will. Where is our heart? Where is our desire? Where is our mind? Is it on the flesh and wanting to please moi and make my name big? Or is my mind on the spirit? And somehow, how can I pray so that your name is glorified? So your name is the one lit up in light. So I'm pleasing you, not me. So what does Hannah do? Given she's a champion of prayer, I think we know. She makes a promise, a wonderful, famous promise from the Bible. This is what she says from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. She says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery, whenever you see the word misery, think mercy. God sees the misery. He's wanting you to come to him and seek his mercy. Look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Now for the icky bit. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. This is not a selfish prayer. This is not give me a son so I can look good. This is not give me a son because... I think I'd feel nice with one cute little baby. She says, please give me a son so that I can give him back to you and make a difference and glorify your name with a son. Now God is molding her. Now her desires are in line with his desires. All those years of praying, every year, again and again she'd come back. He was molding her desires to become more like his because he had a grand plan for her life and a purpose for her life. Now you can see her prayer is in line with his desires because it's for him. You see, God is in the center and the focus of her mind. God is the one that she wants to please with this prayer. God is the one she wants to glorify with her prayer. And God is the one that wants to be in the center of your heart. He wants everything in your life to come into fruition with the plan he has for your life. But only occurs when your heart and his are one. So she's kneeling there in the temple. She's praying this amazing promise. As she's praying in the temple... There's a guy called Eli. He was the chief priest. And the scripture says he's sitting on a chair next to a post in the temple. And he notices Hannah over there praying. And what he notices is as she's kneeling there praying to God, he notices something a bit odd. He says, oh, I can see that your lips are moving, but there's no sound coming out of that mouth. It's a bit odd. So he goes over to Hannah and says, you're drunk. You're drunk. Stop drinking so much wine. That's what's wrong with you. You're drunk. That's why I can't hear any of these words coming out. 
he jumped. Just like that. We know what she was praying. He doesn't know what she's praying. But he looked at the outwards appearance. He took one piece of information and said, you're drunk. And isn't that easy to do? Isn't that so easy to do? You get one piece of information and you jump. Jesus said, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you, have n- you would not have condemned the innocent. Eli just condemned the innocent. He jumped. He made a hasty judgment, no spiritual discernment whatsoever. He just jumped. And I think about that. I think about Eli and I think, well, you know, his job is all about sacrificing, getting it right with God. What's right, what's wrong? That's what Eli had to do. That was part of his role as the priest at the temple. And I think, I guess, I can kind of understand why he may have jumped if his view is constantly looking at that. But that doesn't please God. That's not what he desires. He's desiring that we give mercy, give a higher weight, more weight to mercy, not sacrifice, what's right and wrong and getting it right. Because after all, Jesus has completed the sacrifice. That's been done for us. We don't have to go back and put more on the altar. Can I twist your arm, God? That's not what he's saying here. He said, I desire mercy. You know, it's really interesting. I was reading something by D.A. Carson. He's written this book on Sermon on the Mount. And I've just got this fire to get more and more and more um, understanding about Sermon on the Mount. And he makes an interesting comment. He says, now I'm not saying Eli was an alcoholic, by the way, when I explain this. I'm just talking about a comment that he made, which kind of reminded me of this situation. He said, there's a saying that goes something like this. An alcoholic that doesn't want to admit that he's an alcoholic, that he has a problem, hates all other alcoholics. And he says, and isn't it true that sinners who don't acknowledge that they have sin in their life hate all other sinners? And yet the sinner who recognises that he has sin in his life recognises the only way he can solve the sin problem in his life is to come to God and plead for mercy. That is the only way I can fix this sin in my life. There's no other way. I am just so dependent on your mercy and now I am so grateful for your mercy. And as a result, wants to extend mercy to others because he himself has received so much mercy. So I think about that. And I think, imagine if we desired mercy more than sacrifice, right and wrong. If we said, I've got it wrong because there's not one that's righteous, not one. And I'm only here because God has extended mercy to me. I wonder if we'd be quicker to give mercy to others, if we wouldn't jump so quick. I mean, being condemned and condemning the incident, the innocent, it's a kind of... It's a common experience, isn't it? Have you had experience with this? Either condemning the innocent or being the innocent and being condemned? I've had some experience with this too. Let me just briefly share with you. 
I don't know if you recall a couple of weeks ago in the sermon, Mark mentioned this scripture. This is a special, special scripture to me. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. So beautiful. I love, it's probably my favorite scripture, I think. And one of the reasons it's so precious to me is because my grandmother gave this to me 20 years ago, June 2003. No, 1993, June 1993. So I was visiting my grandmother in Switzerland. And the reason I was in Switzerland visiting my grandmother is because my grandmother had just uh, lost her daughter-in-law. She just died. I just lost my mother. She just died. And I'd taken my dad to Switzerland to go and visit his family because he just lost his wife who just died. And the reason my mum had just died, so I was uh, 25, I think, or 26, my mum was 56, is because she died from a terminal illness. The months leading up to the terminal illness, she had all the treatment she could possibly get for cancer. In Brisbane, the doctors eventually said, there's nothing more I can do for you. So the royal flying doctor said, but we'll fly you home. So I flew home with mum on one of those tiny little planes that you can only fit about four people on, flew home and I think it was two months. For two months. Sorry? A home? Home is a place called Theodore. So that's in central Queensland. So tiny little airstrip, but they still have an airstrip, so that's impressive. So we, we went home. Mum and I. So dad's still at home. My two brothers are farming on the farm at home. And um, for two months, she just disintegrated before my eyes. It's a horrible, horrible, horrible disease. It's like every day is worse than the previous one. There's more pain. There's more medication. She can eat less and less. She needs more and more morphine. She drifts in and out. She can't talk as much. Everything is worse. There's something really awful to, to, to watch that, to experience that, and not to be able to say it's going to get better. For her, physically, she was just getting worse and worse and worse. So to this day, I remember very clearly she died really early in the morning, and my immediate reaction anger at God. How could you allow this? What's my mother ever done wrong to you? This is disgusting what you just allowed to occur. Can you imagine how painful it is to have this stuff in your bones and having to take morphine every morning just to breathe in and out? How could you allow this, God? This is awful. You're despicable. I was livid. You don't want to know what came out of my mouth. It was horrible. And then when I was finished being angry at God, I decided that I was angry at him for mum. And then I started to get real angry at him for me. It was like, you took her. I'm 26 years old. I'm not even married yet. She's not going to come to my wedding. She's not going to meet my babies if ever I have children. I won't be able to experience that beautiful thing that happens between mother and daughter when they bring the baby home. They're never going to meet her. Every Mother's Day, there'll be no Mother's Day card for me to fill out. You've robbed me. You've taken her. Look what you've done to me now. Man, I was angry. 
self-pity through the roof. But stop! What were my thoughts? My thoughts were self-pity onto me and self-pity onto me and self-pity onto me. My thoughts were all about me and my comfort and what my flesh wants and my circumstances. God, you're just a distant memory. You're supposed to be in control, but you're not doing anything I want. So obviously your thoughts are different to my thoughts and your thoughts are wrong and my thoughts are right. You know who I was condemning? I was condemning the most innocent one, the God of this nation I was condemning. I have experience with condemning the innocent. I gave him a full blast for months. But his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And when my grandmother said in her Swiss accent and the feeble little voice, tiny little woman, but Jesus' ways aren't our ways, dear, is what she said to me. And I remember thinking, oh, crazy old thing. <laughs> but, you know, these words just kept going on and on and on. You know, God does not give up on us. Oh, thank you, God, that you didn't give up on me. They just went on and on. What did she mean by that? His ways are not like our ways. Oh, obviously not in his ways. And, mm, I don't want to let him know how his ways are like. Oh, it just kind of gave me fuel for the fire. But, you know, his ways are extraordinarily higher than our ways and his thoughts are extraordinarily higher than our thoughts because you know what was going on in mum's life? About four months before she died, she started getting all religious. It was annoying at the time. She said she wanted to go back to church. She said she wanted to talk to God. I thought, oh, great. So I took her along to this crazy little church. And, you know, those, some churches, they, they go up and, you know, um, she was lining up with all these people and, you know, they push them. They push them over. So mum's standing there and I'm standing there just thinking, oh, get me out of here. So they're trying to push her. She's thinking, well, she told me later, she's standing there and she's thinking, well, if God is real, I'll fall over. She wasn't falling over, so she was waiting for God to push her over. Didn't happen. Until eventually someone came and physically pushed her over, which really didn't help an awful lot in terms of her thinking, is God here or not? But you know what happened through there? I am now convinced that what God does is he takes our light and momentary afflictions. That's in 2 Corinthians. He takes them. And he achieves for us an eternal weight of glory. So all these problems that look huge with this funny little God down here, all of a sudden we realize that ain't the way it is. Do you know all these problems? They're light afflictions in comparison to the amazing weight of glory in eternity. All I can see is what's happening here on earth. See, the unseen is so much greater than the seen. But the problems are seen by us, you see. So you know what? God let mum go through those light afflictions. And I call them light afflictions today. Because she's in eternity. She's got this amazing weight of eternity, the, the, the weight of glory. So he had a plan for her life. He had to take some pretty radical measures. She'd gone a long way from God, so he had to do a lot of work to get her back. But he fixed it. So that anger 
that condemnation at the innocent that I was leveling at God had no basis at all, none. So that was the first piece of anger. I had the second piece of anger. Remember the whole, oh, what about me and the Mother's Day cards and, the, and my babies and I go to the wedding and what about me, what about me? You know, mum left me some money when she died and that money I used to renovate the house. So to renovate the house, you've got to put out a tender and you have to get some quotes. So the builder that we decided that we take his quote rocked on up. And um, he was a funny kind of builder because as well as being a builder, he was a pastor of a church. Ooh, a bit odd. And he was a pastor of this funny little church called CDM. Never heard of CDM. Man, were there some funny little conversations in my backyard with this funny old builder from this funny little church. He said God had all of that sorted. He said those momentary and light afflictions, Liz, of not having a mum there to share those beautiful grandchildren, to actually come to your wedding and to get to know your husband and to see your future and to share your future, they're light afflictions compared to the purpose I had for your life to experience the eternal weight of glory, coming to meet me and know me. It's exactly what the youth did on Friday night. It's exactly. It's Philippians 3 says the same thing. I count it all but loss. These problems, these achievements, they're all loss compared to knowing Jesus, compared to the eternal weight of glory. We get the scales mixed up. Big time. Big, big time. And the problem is we start condemning the innocent. This ain't God's desire. So back to Hannah, back to 1 Samuel. So Hannah is praying. Remember Eli the priest, he's sitting on the chair and he's saying, you're drunk. Hasty judgment, real hasty judgment. He's condemning the innocent. Hannah says, no, not so, Lord. Not so. I am here pouring out my soul to you. I am sorrowful and I am full of grief. No, I'm not drunk. And she also says, and I'm not a wicked woman. And in the King James Version, it says, I'm not a daughter of Belial. Now, a daughter of Belial would be a wicked woman, which is the way the NIV interpret it. it so a daughter of Belial is worthlessness or wickedness. So she's saying... That's a wrong accusation. I'm not. But you know, in Eli's life, he had two sons. They were priests. And do you know how the Bible describes Eli's two sons? Sons of Belial. So here he was, quick to shoot again. And yet in his own life, he had two sons that the Bible describes, they really were wicked sons. They were supposed to be organizing some of the sacrifices. They were taking too much meat. They were having sex with women at the gates of the temple. I mean, they, were, they really were sons of Belial. They were wicked. So he's so quick to judge right and wrong, to look at what needs to be sacrificed for your wrongs. And sometimes I think we've got to be careful. We're not too quick. 
that not one of us is righteous. We've got to make sure that we understand in our own lives there are things that will only be fixed by God's mercy. And then when we experience God's mercy, it's so much easier to extend mercy to others, to understand the speck in someone else's eye is so little compared to the great big plank that's sticking out of mine. So she said, no, no, I'm not drunk and I'm not a daughter of Belial. That's, that's not me. I'm pouring out my heart. So Eli got that wrong. Eli got it wrong. And, you know, God was watching that. And he actually watched and noticed that Eli did not restrain his sons. You know, one of the best definitions, I think, of disobedience is incomplete obedience. Because Eli did a whole lot of good stuff, a whole lot of good things. But in his own family, in his own sons, the Bible says he did not restrain them. So God puts a very heavy weight on us as parents. Me too. This, this hits me to the core. He's watching very, very carefully the way we parent. And God, he, he's a holy God. And he notices and he follows through. And he is true to his promises. And you know what happened to poor Eli and his two sons? They were at battle with the Philistines. And a messenger came in and Eli was sitting down on a chair again. It's odd. I don't really know why he's sitting on chairs so much. But anyway, he's sitting on a chair again. And the, the messenger came in. He's a big man. That's why he needed to sit down. So he's sitting on a chair again. A messenger came and said, your two sons have just been killed in battle. They were young men. So that distraught him. And then the clincher. He says, in the Ark of the Covenant, which was held in the temple at Shiloh, which is where Eli was, he was in front, that's been taken by the Philistines, by the enemy. Do you know what happened at that point? Eli fell off the back of his chair, broke his neck and died. You see, God is a holy God. He is a just God. He is wanting to bless us, but he cannot and will not let sin go. He will not turn a blind eye to sin. Eli might have, but God will not. So Eli really made some poor judgments. But you know, there's something, even though now I've... I've I've talked to you about some of the problems and difficulties he had. But you know what I really respect about Eli? Is when he made this false accusation and Hannah says, not so, I'm not a daughter of Belial. I'm pouring my heart out. I'm sorrowful. I'm full of sorrow, just like Jesus was. I'm full of sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm full of sorrow. Do you know what? What I really admire about Eli he didn't stop and argue with her or defend his position or say, I know you're drunk and rah, rah, rah. He stopped and recognized he was wrong. He made a mistake. And I can just imagine that his whole tone changed when he said to her, go in peace. May your request be granted. 
That's an impressive man. He recognises he's wrong and he says, Oh, go in peace. May your request in prayer be granted. And her request, it was granted. She had this beautiful baby boy and named him Samuel because we're in First Samuel. But she made a promise. She made a vow. She said, I will give him back to you. So you know this beautiful little boy, the Bible says when she weaned him, she took him back. She gave him back to Eli the priest and said, I'm the woman that was praying here. This is the baby. This is the child I prayed for. I'm now giving him back to you. And gave this beautiful little child away. Once she'd done that, she prayed this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. She said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn or strength is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. For I delight in your deliverance. Woo! She's just given over her son. Her new problem is a new kind of barrenness, grief. She's childless again. But she's no longer got the scars that says, woe is me. Oh, God, I can't believe I've just given up a baby. Can you give me another one? And I'm just rejoicing in this beautiful son. And uh, No, she's rejoicing in God. She, this is as light as a feather, these momentary afflictions. She's saying, no, the eternal weight of glory and knowing Jesus. And I rejoice in the Lord. That's where she is. Her scales have totally moved. Totally moved. First problem, she has a son. She's barren. She hasn't got a son anymore. But she says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. You're my strength. Second problem with Penina. Remember the one that kept teasing her? Look at what she says. My mouth boasts over my enemies. She can speak of her enemies without bitterness or envy or revenge. Beautiful. For I delight in your deliverance. You've saved me from my enemies. It's beautiful, beautiful recognition that her heart now is totally molded to be exactly in line with God's purposes. Because we know Samuel was the last judge and one of the greatest prophets in history. Man, imagine if she prayed differently in the temple. None of this would have come into fruition. None of it. It's so beautiful to see her as a champion of prayer, rejoicing in the Lord, just as Paul did in Philippians 3. And when she went back, Eli blessed her and said, Thank you, God, for the son. Please replace the son that she gave up with more children. And here she is. Here's Hannah with three boys and two girls. Nice. God is a just God. Both ways. He rewards and he punishes. You can rely on God. You can depend on God. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He is looking to meet with you today. He is speaking through his word to you today. He wants to strengthen you. He so wants you to live out the purposes of, that he has for you in your life. But that's not going to happen if our hearts are far from him. If we honour him with our lips, but our hearts, they're somewhere else. So this is the story of Hannah. This is the end of the sermon. This is a champion of prayer. 
a wonderful woman of faith, amazing woman of influence. But she had everyday problems like you and I have, everyday ordinary life like you and I have. But her heart was for God. Her mind was set on the Spirit. Her desires were for the Spirit. So God is meeting with us today. He's speaking through his word to us today. But it's not over yet. Because God has more for you today. He's just spoken to you from his word, from his written word. And now he wants to speak to you through his spoken word. On Tuesday, he gave me a prophetic word for each person sitting here today. There is not one of you that's not meant to be here today. Whether you listen to his words or not is up to you. But these words are for you. The Lord says to you today, I want you. I want you to have my desires in your heart. I want you to live the life that I've prepared for you. The plans I have for you are still there. But there are some desires in your heart that aren't my desires. You need to forsake them, get rid of them, get them out, move them. I'll help you do that. Let me mould you and do that so that your desires become the same as my desires. The Lord says to you today, I want you. I want you to come and walk with me and live the purpose and the plan that I have for you. And to do that, I want your heart to be completely and perfectly and wholly committed to me. He wants to meet with you. He so wants to meet with you. There's nothing more important that you can do today than meet with him. He doesn't want you to walk out of here going, ah, what's next? Lunch, washing up, dinner, washing up. He says, I want you. I want you to glorify my name. I want you to know the eternal weight of glory. I want that to be so, so fired in you that you can't think of anything else. That this meaningless, purposeless, barren life, that doesn't have to be anymore. I can use that in your life to bring you to my desires. Come in, walk with me in my will. I want you to be a champion of prayer. I want you. 